Hi, and welcome to Crash Course Catholicism, a podcast about Catholic teaching and why it makes sense. I'm your host, Caitlin West. Okay, now this episode is on Jesus, right? Jesus Christ, Son of God. Now, Obviously, this is a topic that is pretty important to Christians, right? Like, we are Christians. See what I did there? Christ is at the center of our faith, right? So it's pretty important that we know who Christ is. But at the same time, this is a topic where most people, even a lot of non-Christians, feel pretty comfortable, right? Like, we kind of know who Jesus is and what his role was and what he did for us, etc., And we might think, you know, well, how much more is there to learn, really? In one sense, yes, we might know a lot about Jesus. But in another sense, we might not know much at all. So what I mean is this. My grandmother was born in Texas, and she moved here as an adult. So she has quite a strong Southern American accent. Now, for me, growing up, I had no idea that my grandma had an American accent. None whatsoever. Because I was so used to the way her voice sounded, I was like, well, yeah, that's just my grandma's voice. And I remember once when I was maybe about eight or nine, and I was talking to my older sister, and she said in passing, oh, yeah, because our grandma has an American accent. And I was like, what? No, she doesn't. She was like, she has a distinctive American accent. And I remember the next time I went to her house, I was listening and I had this mind-blowing moment of like, oh my gosh, my grandma's got an accent. And sometimes it can kind of be the same with us, with some of these truths of our faith that we've grown up with and we've known our whole lives. We can be like, yeah, 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 like Jesus, son of God, blah. But sometimes what we need to do is take ourselves by the shoulders, give ourselves a big shake and be like, hey, this is what we believe. And in that moment, we will discover new truths, things we didn't know before, and also things that maybe we implicitly did know, but we weren't even really aware of. So that's kind of what we're going to do in this episode. And here I'm going to take a leaf out of G.K. Chesterton's book, both figuratively and literally, okay? This is how G.K. Chesterton opens his book, Orthodoxy. He talks about how sometimes when we know something really well, we can become kind of desensitized to it. And what we need to do is find a way to make it unfamiliar and strange and new to us so that we can encounter it on a much deeper and more complex level. So that's what we're going to do in this episode. And we're going to start somewhere really basic. Okay, we're going to start with just the name Jesus. Okay, what does that word mean? Okay, what do we mean when we say it? I mean, for us in the modern world, names aren't particularly important, right? I mean, they sort of accrue importance over our lifetimes as we attach memories to names and we might get a nickname or whatever, but your parents probably chose your name because it sounded nice, right? And that's about it. And I don't know about you, but I've certainly kind of assumed before that Jesus' name is equally incidental, right? Like his name was Jesus, but it could have been, you know, Terry or Jerome or something. I mean, probably not in like ancient Nazareth, but you know what I mean? Like it could have been anything. And then when we think about, you know, the meaning of a name today, we might sort of think about the etymology of the name. And then you might come up with some like really cute thing that's like, oh, well, my name actually means unicorn in Gaelic or whatever. And you get a nice little magnet and put it on your fridge. And it's very nice, but it doesn't really mean anything. And then we might apply the same thinking to Jesus name. 
when the angel Gabriel tells Mary that you will call him Emmanuel, which means God who saves, that might sound like a kind of nice, neat parallel with the fact that Jesus is God who saves, and that's very nice. And we might not think more about it than that, or I certainly didn't. But there's actually a lot more to it than that. In the ancient world, your name was incredibly important. It wasn't just seen as a label, it was seen as an expression of who you were. And as well as that, there was this belief that knowing someone's name gave you a kind of power over them because you could call on that person and use their name and you had this knowledge of who they were. So we see this, for instance, in the Old Testament. When Moses first encounters the burning bush, one of the first things he asks God is, what is your name? And God doesn't respond with like, you know, my name is William or something. He says in response, I am. So what God is doing there, he is expressing the very essence of his divine nature to Moses. He's not just giving him a label that he can use. He's genuinely saying on a deep level, this is who I am. Now that I am translates to Yahweh in Hebrew and Lord in Greek. So you might notice in your Bible that the word Lord is always written in capital letters. And that's because it is such an important name. It expresses God's nature and it also contains power, right? This is the name that we call on when we're praying to God. Now, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary in the New Testament and says to her, you'll have a child and you will call him Emmanuel, which means God who saves. Okay, again, that's not just a label. That name expresses on a really deep and profound level what Christ's identity and mission is. So first of all, it tells us who he is. Okay, It tells us that he is God. And the Catechism mentions this in point number 432. It says, The name Jesus signifies that the very name of God is present in the person of his Son. So in that name, we are told this is God. But it's God with a specific mission to save us. Yeah, God who saves. So when we say the name Jesus, we're not just using a label. We're actually expressing his identity and calling on the power that comes with that identity. So we're not just like throwing a random name out there and hoping that it sticks, right? Like, (laughs) I remember my parents used to have this dog and she was very sweet, but she was not very intelligent, right? Not the brightest bulb in the tanning bed, this dog. And so my parents actually got her from a neighbor. We sort of inherited her and her name was originally Bella, but we changed it because it was too similar to my sister's name. So anyway, a few years after we got this dog, I was in the backyard and she was kind of like pottering about in the garden. And I was looking at her and I thought, gosh, I wonder if she remembers her old name. And so I called out to her. I was like, Bella. And she whipped around with her tail wagging and her tongue hanging out like she was ready to play. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like the dog remembers her name. Wow. Maybe she's more smart than we thought she was. And then she kind of lost interest and went back to pottering. And then I had this moment where I thought, 
huh, I wonder if she'll respond to anything else. <laughs> so I called out the word bucket and she did the same thing. She whipped around with her tail wagging and was like, yes. <laughs> and I had this moment where I realized like, oh dear, this doggo does not know her own name. You could literally call anything out with the right intonation and she would come running thinking you'd called her. So, okay, <laughs> the name Jesus isn't as arbitrary as that, okay? We can't just fling anything out there. I mean, I guess technically we can, but why would you, right? Because Jesus' name has so much more meaning and power and significance. So there's this quote from Dr. Peter Kraft, and I think he puts it really well. He says this, To invoke Jesus' name is to place yourself in his presence. It does not just make a change within us, a psychological change. It makes a change between us and God, a real objective change. It is as real as changing your relationship to the sun by going outdoors. So what he's saying is that when we say the name Jesus, we are putting ourselves in the presence of God in a very real way. And in so doing, we are opening ourselves up to his grace. So I don't know if you've ever heard of the Jesus prayer. It's particularly popular in kind of Eastern Catholic traditions, but it's a really beautiful prayer and there are different variations on it. But basically what it is, is just repeating the name Jesus over and over and in so doing, putting ourselves into his presence. So you might say something like, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it can be a great one to pray during the day, kind of in the back of our minds, as an aspiration, etc. And it's particularly useful if you're like me and you have ADHD and you can't function for more than 2.5 seconds without getting distracted by something because the prayer literally only goes for about 2.5 seconds. And it's also incredibly powerful because that name Jesus captures the entire gospel, right? We could do this kind of analysis on all of the names that we use for Jesus, right? The term Christ, the Messiah, Lord, the Son of God, you know, and the Catechism actually does unpack each of these terms and explains what they mean in more depth. Now, we don't have time to do that here, but if it's something that you'd like to do, I would encourage you to go to the Catechism. And I'll have the chapters of the Catechism that we're covering today in the show notes so you can go and check it out. And it's worth doing, right? Because we can get so desensitized to these names and forget the power and the meaning that they hold. And basically what we learn from them, what these terms like son of God and Messiah and Lord reveal to us about Jesus is that he is the son of God. Okay. He's the second person of the Trinity who has taken on a human body and soul for the sole purpose <laughs> pun, for the sole purpose of reuniting us with God through his death and resurrection. Now, we might hear all of that and think, well, yeah, okay, that, that's all pretty basic and obvious and everyone kind of knows that. And yeah, okay, maybe now they do. But actually, this idea was bonkers at the time when Jesus lived. Okay, this was a revolutionary idea. And why? Well, because the Jews, they had been promised a Messiah, right? We see that all through the Old Testament. And this Messiah was going to be a great prophet and a great king, and he was going to save the Jews. Now, the way that people interpreted that at the time was that they were expecting like a human guy, right? Just a, just an everyday guy. I mean, not an everyday guy, a special guy, but a, a purely human person who would be a really great human king and he would have a worldly kingdom, okay? And he was going to save the Jews from specifically the Romans and establish a literal worldly kingdom and rule over the Jews. So that's what they were expecting, okay? What they were not expecting was God himself, 
becoming a human being. Okay, what they weren't expecting was a heavenly kingdom. What they weren't expecting was God who saved them not just from the threats of the people around them, but from their sins and opened the gates to heaven for them. That they were not expecting. And if we realize that, then we can kind of reread the Gospels with this in mind. The fact that people didn't understand that Jesus was God. People didn't understand that he wasn't about to whip up an army and overthrow the Romans. Once we grasp that, then the Gospels become so much more, first of all, so much more exciting. And second of all, so much more hilarious. Because every five seconds, the apostles are saying things where you're like, you guys clearly still think that this is a, an earthly thing. Like when they're all arguing about which of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom, they're not talking about heaven. They're talking about like, who's going to be the top dog boss? Who's going to have what jobs when Jesus overthrows the Romans? Or like even that moment when Jesus says, you know, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. And the apostles are all like, oh, he's clearly talking about literal bread. And Jesus has to be like, guys, look up, look up. I'm not just talking about material things. I'm not just talking about this earth. I'm pointing you towards a heavenly kingdom. And the disciples keep not getting it right up until the death and resurrection of Christ. Like they're heading for Jerusalem and Jesus keeps openly saying, like he's not using parables. He's openly telling them, guys, when we get to Jerusalem, I will be killed, I will die, and I will rise on the third day. And they're all like, cool, 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 cool. So when are you going to overthrow the Romans? <laughs> and can you imagine that? Like, can you imagine having that feeling of everything building up towards this incredible victory, and then suddenly the rug gets pulled out from under you and Jesus is dead? Like, and it's like, well that's it? Like, what was the point of all of that? And it's not until Christ's resurrection and also with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that the apostles' eyes are fully opened and they realize, oh, okay, this was the plan all along. And it was a plan that was so much better than anything the apostles had planned. And this is helpful for us to remember for a couple of reasons. First of all, it can kind of help to blow the dust and cobwebs away from our understanding of who Jesus was. You know, we can put ourselves into the shoes of the apostles who met Jesus and could obviously immediately see that there was something special about him. But over time, coming to that appreciation, discovering all of those things that we now know as Catholics, that this wasn't just a guy. This was, I mean, he was a guy, but he was also God himself. And the second reason why it's helpful for us to remember this is because it helps us to bring the Gospels and this discovery of who Jesus was into our own lives, because this is kind of the story of our lives, right? We all, because we're all, you know, fallen and broken humans, we all kind of have this, to some extent, very earthbound idea of Jesus and what a friendship with him will look like. You know, we sort of think, well, Jesus, if I'm friends with Jesus, then I will get the things that I need in life, you know, or get the house or the career or the spouse or whatever. You know, we're like Peter. We say, well, God, what about us? We've left everything and followed you. Like, what will we get? And we're thinking like material stuff, right? Or, or not even material stuff, but just like happiness, <laughs> earthly happiness. And then instead of that, often we experience, you know, suffering or loneliness or illness or poverty. And we sort of can be like the apostles. Like we can think, well, hang on, what was that all for? Like, why did you promise so much and then deliver so little? And it's not until 
like later in life or even not until we get into heaven that we look back and we're like, oh, that was the plan. You weren't talking about material stuff. You were talking about heaven. Anyway, I say all of this just to point out that when we get to know the Jesus in the Gospels, we realize that he's the same Jesus who is with us now and that whom we can have a relationship with now. This is the same Jesus who is God himself and remains a human being. Okay, now let's just stop and reflect on what we just said. God became and remains a human being. Now, if we think about that idea for long enough, or not even for very long, we will realize that it is kind of an insane claim to make. We believe as Christians that a literal guy who literally lived at a particular point in history, who was a human being just like every other human being, was also literally God himself. So this is how the catechism puts it. I love how the catechism puts it because it really brings it home that Jesus was a historical figure. So this is point number 423. It reads, We believe and confess that Jesus of Nazareth, born a Jew of a daughter of Israel at Bethlehem at the time of King Herod the Great and the Emperor Caesar Augustus, a carpenter by trade, who died crucified in Jerusalem under the procurator Pontius Pilate during the reign of the Emperor Tiberius, is the eternal Son of God made man. (laughs) I just love it because it's so matter of fact, you know, it's like I wasn't expecting that sentence to go there to end with, oh, also he was God. Because it's all of these like historical facts about this real person. And when we think of it like that, it does sound insane. And if it doesn't sound insane to you, then that's because you're too desensitized to the idea and you need to spend some time with it and discover how crazy it sounds. And this isn't just me just making a mountain out of a molehill, right? Like, this has been a huge point of contention between Christians and other religions, like Judaism and Islam. The idea that God himself would take on a human nature, a human body, body and soul, first of all, seems impossible. Like, how can you have an infinite divine nature and also a finite human nature in the one person? How is that even possible? And secondly, it's seen as some sort of scandal, right? Like the idea that God would become human. It's almost like if the queen went on like an official visit to the zoo and then jumped into the monkey pen and was like, I'm going to be a monkey now. Everyone would be like, hey, dude, get get out of the monkey pen. <laughs> okay. You are the queen. And I think sometimes people see God in the same way. They're like, hey, get out of the material world. Like you're meant to be way far off over there because you are infinite dignity and power and goodness. And you're undermining all of that by becoming a human being. Now, these objections aren't just things that non-Christians have suggested. They're also objections that Christians themselves have had. In fact, in the first few hundred years after the death and resurrection of Christ, a bunch of heresies about Jesus started floating around and gaining popularity in some areas. And these were propagated by people who were dealing with these exact problems. They couldn't reconcile the idea of Jesus being truly God with the idea of him being truly human. And people came up with a bunch of different theories that were eventually denounced as heresies, okay? Because they basically involved saying one of three things, that Jesus wasn't really God, or that he wasn't really human, or that he wasn't really one person. So, the first of these heresies was called docetism, or 
Dossetism. I'm not entirely sure which one. You know when you've only ever read a word and you haven't actually said it out loud? It's one of the two. I'm going to go with Dossetism, okay? Which is basically this idea that Jesus was God, but he wasn't really human. He just took on the appearance of a human being. In the same way that if an angel appeared to you and it looked a lot like a human, it still wouldn't be a human. Okay, so that's Dossetism. And then you have Arianism, which is kind of the flipped argument. Okay, the idea that Jesus was truly a human being, but he wasn't actually God. He was just like a really holy guy. And this is still an opinion that a lot of people have. You know, when you encounter someone and they'll be like, yeah, like I believe that Jesus was a historical figure who really lived and I think that he was a good man and a, and a philosophical teacher or whatever, but I don't think that he was God. And then the third of these is the Nestorian heresy, which basically argues that there were actually two different persons, two individuals who were kind of tethered together, right? Kind of like conjoined twins, right? Okay, so all of these theories were denounced by the church's heresies. And in the year 431 at the Council of Ephesus, the church officially stated the following, quote, the word uniting to himself in his person the flesh animated by a rational soul became man. Okay, so that's a really dense sentence. So let's unpack it, right? What's it actually saying? What it's saying is that basically there is one person, okay? There's not two persons, there's only one. So if you remember in the Trinity episode, we talked about how a being is a what, a person is a who. So there's only one who, there's only one individual. And that one person has a divine nature. And in addition to that, he took on a distinct, separate human nature. Okay. And by human nature, we mean a human body and soul. So he didn't try to squish the divine nature into a human nature, right? The two things remain separate. So we can kind of think of it like Clark Kent and Superman, right? They're both the same person, even though they're distinct from each other. Or we can think like, imagine if your mum also took on the role of your soccer coach. Now, when she becomes your soccer coach, she doesn't stop being your mum or sort of automatically become less of a mother because she's also your soccer coach. She just takes on the role of soccer coach in addition to the role of mother. Those two things remain distinct, even though it's the same person. So in the same way, God maintains his divinity. Okay, He doesn't relinquish that. But in addition to it, he takes on a human body and soul. Now, the fancy theological term for this, because there is always a fancy theological term for these things, the term that we use to describe this is, get ready for it, the hypostatic union. Now that's a word to remember so that you can whip it out at dinner parties and make everyone feel super impressed by your amazing vocabulary. I mean, look, depending on the dinner party, some people might just think that you're extremely weird. <laughs> but okay, this term hypostatic union basically just means that there's one person with two distinct natures, human and divine. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, okay, Caitlin, I get it, right? The divine and human natures, they're different from each other. They're distinct. One isn't absorbed into the other, etc. But that doesn't make those two natures compatible with each other. You know, a divine nature is infinite. How can that nature coexist in the same person with a human nature? Because humans are by default limited. They have limited knowledge and capacities. So surely it's just like neither can live while the other survives, right? Well, that is a great objection, and I'm glad you brought it up. Let's address it. So, 
Jesus' human nature is only limited in relation to human things. Okay, now what do I mean by that? Well, think of it this way. I don't know if you have ever tried to learn a second language, but if you have, then you will know that there is nothing more frustrating than trying and failing to say something in your second language that you absolutely know how to say in your first language, right? Like you've got the words in your head, but you just can't express them in this other language. So say that you're trying to speak French, right? And you just can't get the words out no matter what you do. Now, your limitations in this instance only relate to your capacity to speak French specifically, okay? They don't stop you from being able to communicate in your first language or to communicate in general. Yeah, you still retain that knowledge. It's just that insofar as you are speaking French, you are limited. And that limitation can totally coexist with the fact that you speak fluent English. So in the same way, when God became man, he was limited, but only in the area of like human knowledge of human things. He retained his divine knowledge of divine things. So for instance, when Jesus was first born, he had to learn how to walk, right? And how to feed himself and how to speak. And he didn't yet know what it was like to like, you know, have a mozzie bite or trip over and skin your knee on a rock. Okay. These were all things that he had to learn and experience over time, like any other human being. And the catechism tells us in point number 472 that this is why the Son of God could, when he became man, increase in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, and would even have to inquire for himself about what one in the human condition can only learn from experience. Okay, so God had to grow in his human knowledge of human things, but he never lost any of his divine knowledge of divine things. So this helps us to answer the question of whether Jesus knew he was God from the moment of birth. And the answer to that question is yes. Yes, he did. So Pope Pius XII, in an encyclical called Mystici Corporis Christi, he writes, From the moment of his incarnation, he possessed the beatific vision, and in that vision he saw God in his essence, and he saw each and every one of us as well. So Jesus knew God, knew that he was God, and retained all of that infinite knowledge and power and wisdom of God, okay, because he remained God, but his human knowledge of human things remained limited and had to grow. Now, Jesus is fully human, right, as well as being fully divine. So that means that as well as having human knowledge, a human intellect, he also has a human will, so he was able to make free decisions in response to his human instincts, yeah, of like fear or suffering or hunger or pain, etc. In the same way that, uh, you know, the rest of us humans get to make free decisions in response to our instincts and emotions, etc. Okay, and we kind of covered this in the episode on creation. Now, we see evidence of Christ's human will in the Gospels in the way that the devil tries to take advantage of it. So, for instance, when Jesus goes out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, the devil appears to him and is like, hey, Jesus, I know you're hungry. You're really hungry. You should make the decision to conjure up some food. Or another way that we see this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Before the crucifixion, Jesus says to God the Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. 
but not my will, but yours be done. So we might hear that and think like, but hang on, how can Jesus' will be different from God the Father's will because they're the same being? Well, that's how, because Jesus had a human will. So he had those kind of human instincts to do certain things. But, and this is really important, he always submitted his human will to his divine will. And this is something that the Catechism makes note of. Point number 475. It says that Christ's divine and human wills are not opposed to each other, but that Christ's human will does not resist or oppose, but rather submits to his divine and almighty will. Okay, so even though Christ might have felt the human aversion to pain, and he might have felt hunger or fear, he always made an act of the will that was in line with what his divine will wanted. So when we look at Jesus and at his humanity, we can truly, really say that he is like us in all things but sin. He has felt all of the things that we feel. He has truly experienced what it is to be human, even though he is God. And this is incredibly important for us to remember. And why? Well, the Catechism touches on this when it quotes from the Roman Missal in point number 477 of the Catechism. It says that in the body of Jesus, we see our God made visible and so are caught up in love of the God we cannot see. By taking on a human nature, Jesus Christ makes God visible and present to us in the most incredible and powerful way. So when we're praying and when we're getting to know God, this can be something really helpful. Like when we're reading the Gospels, we can spend time really thinking about like, what would Jesus have looked like right now? Like, what would his face have looked like? What would his eyes have looked like? What would his smile have looked like? What would his laugh have sounded like? Because this is one of the most precious gifts that God has given us in the person of Jesus Christ, a kind of uniquely tangible access to him. And we can make use of the many resources available to help us access the humanity of Jesus, right? I mean, first of all, we can use our own imaginations, yeah, as I've already said, with the aid of the Gospels. And in our prayer, we can just imagine sitting with him and chatting to him one-on-one. Or we could use something like a TV program or a film, you know, Jesus of Nazareth or The Chosen, or if it's Easter time, you might watch The Passion, okay? Things that remind us that Jesus is a real human being with whom we can have a real, genuine, human, personal relationship. And not just that we can, but we should, we must, we have to. That's the whole point of everything. And as well as that, you know, we can remember that in the Gospels, Jesus says to us that whenever you did this to the least of these, you did it to me. And we can take that seriously as well, that every person we encounter is another Christ. This is something that I've heard people say about Pope John Paul too, that one of the reasons why he loved other people so much was because he saw Christ in other people. I was talking to my friend recently and we were talking about the vocation to marriage. And she said, you know, the great thing about marriage is that you get to hug Christ. <laughs> like you get to reach out and touch him. Now, okay, maybe you're listening to this and you're married and you're thinking like, well, I don't know about that, Caitlin. <laughs> I don't know if I'd call my spouse Christ. <laughs> but 
at the same time, like each of us as human beings is called to be Christ to others and to see Christ in others. And we can make use of that, right? Of the human bodies around us that every person we meet, we can look in their eyes and say, okay, I am looking into the eyes of Christ. In this person, I'm going to let Christ become physically present to me. And I'm going to try to be physically present as Christ to that other person. Okay. Now, next episode, I'm really excited about because we are going to talk about Jesus' mom and also our mom. Yeah, we're going to talk about Mary. I'm super excited for that. But for now, I'm going to end it here and I'm going to look forward to talking to you in two weeks. Bye.